Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, it's too soon to support drug decriminalization in Alberta. That, according to the Alberta Association of Police Chiefs. The threat of Russian-backed cyber attacks growing. We'll speak with a cybersecurity expert. And the threat of conflict in Russia continues to grow, too. And with the rising cost of food, who makes the money? You probably saw the story last week. Um, Mark Newfeld, who is chief of police in the city of Calgary and president of the Alberta Association of Chiefs of Police, um, throwing some cold water, well, kind of, on uh, on the idea of decriminalizing drugs. Not saying no, but saying not now, not right now. Uh, Newfeld says on behalf of Alberta's police chiefs that we're just not ready yet. And a number of things need to be put in place before we actually do go down that road. So um, when we hear this talk, uh, there's uh, actually a motion going to be going towards Edmonton City Council. Uh, new councillor Michael Jans, I believe, this week planning to bring forward a motion to explore decriminalizing. Um, it's already happened in um, Vancouver, I believe, and in Ontario, actually province of B.C., Uh, Toronto City Council also looking at it. So it's something that we're hearing more and more about. Where does it fit into the whole situation with how we handle drugs and what we can do uh, to try and get a handle on this opioid epidemic? Where does it fit into all of this? We're going to chat with Dr. Robert Tangay, who is a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Surgery, the University of Calgary. He's the president of the Pain Society of Alberta, provincial medical lead on opioid dependency training and Alberta education uh, addiction education sessions. We've chatted them with before. Uh, Dr. Tangay, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Hey, Shay. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Yeah, so when we talk about this, we, as you know, I like to bring you on. We just stick to the, to the evidence-based treatment models and the science out there. So when we talk about, you know, that approach to tackling the drug issues that we're facing in society right now and, you know, the overdose epidemic and all the rest, where does this decriminalization discussion fit in? Is it part of that spectrum that you, have, you and I have discussed before? Uh, without question, uh, I think that... You know, when we look at good drug policy, it includes four pillars uh, of those pillars. One of them is is harm reduction, which includes uh, the concept of decriminalization. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of movements, but it's it's just one small piece of one pillar of a good drug policy. Right, exactly. There's a whole spectrum. When we talk about this one in particular, though, how does it fit in? How does it make things better? How does it improve the situation? Yeah, I think it does a a lot of different processes with that. I think that, you know, when we decriminalize uh, personal use of drugs for people struggling with addiction, uh, we remove the criminalization of a medical disorder, which is what addiction is. It's a a true mental health disorder. And uh, criminalizing it has always kind of been shocking to uh, many who work in the field, and, and hence why there's such a, a belief that we should decriminalize uh, small personal use 
of substances as the majority of people uh, who end up struggling with, uh, you know, either being charged with simple possession uh, or, or other aspects of it uh, are often those same people who are suffering with addiction. And uh, it just seems like uh, a really poor narrative that we're criminalizing uh, and, and hence uh, adding to the stigma of what should be looked upon as a health disorder. Now, Chief Newfeld not saying necessarily this is a bad idea, not wanting to, you know, not saying this is something that we, he's just saying we need to have some things in place before we go down this, that road. I mean, do you agree with that? Like he's talking about public health supports, ways to transition people into immediate treatment, things like that, things that just aren't there right now. Yeah, and you know what? If you read the British Columbia Association of Chiefs of Police and their report dated from December of 2021, uh, you know, Mike and that team uh, came out with basically the exact same argument. The yes, decriminalization is a good idea, but we need systemic change in order for decriminalization to make sense. Uh, They also really pushed back in Alberta's bought suit with this that four and a half grams of fentanyl is not okay. Uh, that it should be one gram or less. And, and that makes sense as four and a half grams uh, could potentially do a lot of harm to a lot of people, uh, whereas a smaller amount is, is more realistic. And this is where it gets really tricky when we're talking about decriminalization. Yeah. Is it one gram of heroin? Is that the same as, as one gram of fentanyl? Is that the same as one gram of cocaine? And the answer is no, it's not even close. I, I thought it was interesting. He said, you know what? Police officers are already operating largely on the principle of decriminalization anyway. We're not charging a lot of people with, you know, if they've got small amounts of drugs on. We typically, you know, we look to other ways of doing it. So, I mean, already, you know, police officers are exercising their discretion by the sounds of it. Uh, I think that's absolutely true across uh, Canada. Yet at the same time, um, you know, it, it would be much better to have a true protocol of what to do rather than, well, I'm going to let you off this time and then there's nothing. Uh, true disposition is absolutely imperative. So, you know, if, if you are caught with a, a amount of, of substances, there, there has to be what to do next. And right now it's really just up to the discretion of each individual officer right. uh, rather than, um, you know, really a, a true protocol of what to do. So, again, we always look at Portugal, and that's always the one everyone talks about, where decriminalization really started in that process of, of trying to remove the stigma of a health disorder. But at the same time, in their four uh, drug policy uh, pillars, one of them was enforcement. So not you weren't actually allowed to uh, openly publicly use substances. So, yes, a small personal amount was decriminalized, but no, it was not okay to use it in public. Okay. And right now we have such a mishmash of, you know, in certain areas we kind of look the other way or we're not really charging anyone uh, and we're not doing a lot for open public drug use. Uh, and at the same time, uh, it's illegal. So if we were to look at Portugal, it's absolutely illegal to use substances in public. And uh, we would focus on, on uh, you know, treatment and the movement into treatment rather than criminalizing the process. Is that happening anywhere in Canada? I mean, are we, we, we've talked about this so much. And, and like we've said before, I mean, the roadmap is there. It's not like we're, we're, we're splitting the atom here. This isn't new. There's evidence-based things that work. Are we seeing any jurisdictions move in the right direction, as you say, bringing it all together? Well, I think, I think we're starting to see some things happening. I mean... Um, 
you know, for instance, in Alberta, uh, in all correctional uh, provincial institutions, uh, you are now uh, going to meet with uh, an addiction uh, physician and be offered treatment immediately. Yeah. Uh, that's a huge step in, in a positive direction. But you're right. I mean, um, we have a roadmap, but there are differences, uh, differences in legislation, uh, differences in, in uh, governments and how things are run between uh, what a Portuguese federal government looks like, what our federal government looks like, what health looks like, what uh, justice looks like. Um, and, and it's a matter of bringing kind of an interdisciplinary ministry together uh, to develop a true uh, pathway and protocol that that is different where uh there's differences in in how we can and can't do things based on a, a multitude of other laws so can it be done 100% uh is it done yet in canada no uh what has to be done i think it has to be a, a complete makeover of what happens and following the pathway okay you get caught with a personal amount you're not going to be charged for it but in Portugal, you go to a dissuasion court. Can we have some sort of compassion panel which would recommend treatment? Is treatment available? Can they get in easily? Uh, once they go into treatment, what happens? Do we waive all charges? The Oregon model is exactly that. You'll get charged, but your charges will be waived if you go to treatment. But is that actually working if you don't have treatment? Yeah. So I mean, it's, it's, it's really sitting back and looking at the system as a whole rather than little parts like decriminalization, which is just a small piece. Yes, that whole spectrum that we've talked about. Uh, Dr. Tange, thanks so much for your time this morning. I appreciate you joining us. Well, the threat of conflict remains very, very, very high on the Russia-Ukraine border. Uh, All kinds of high-level diplomatic negotiations currently underway to try and see if they can defuse the situation. But as you know, those talks have not gone anywhere uh, in the past couple of weeks. There are tens of thousands of Russian troops uh, being amassed in the area, and there is a lot of concern that uh, an invasion is imminent. Now, of course, you've got Canada as part of NATO uh, very vocally saying we're on board with whatever consequences the West decides to bring forward on Russia should there be uh, an incursion into Ukraine. Right now, it'll be primarily diplomatic and huge financial penalties is what they're talking about. Um, Now, last week, um, we finalized a $120 million loan to Ukraine. There is a small number of special forces troops operating in Ukraine. We've put in plans to try and get um, our diplomatic representatives out of there. In fact, the Prime Minister was talking about that this morning. He says contingency plans are in place to protect Canadian diplomats in Ukraine and their families. Uh, Trudeau says that Canada will make a determination about potential evacuations based on the safety of the situation. We are extremely concerned uh, about uh, the Russian aggression and the uh, ongoing threat of further invasion into Ukraine. Uh, That is why we've worked with our diplomats, uh, our uh, military in place and around the world to ensure uh, that we're doing everything we can, whatever eventuality comes up. Um, Yeah, so we're watching and waiting. Uh, The U.S. putting together plans to evacuate their diplomatic personnel from Ukraine right now. Now, uh, last week... Canada's cybersecurity agency put out a warning saying that the likelihood of Russian-based cyber attacks is growing by the day 
amid this tension. You can expect Russia to react uh, with cyber attacks. Now there's news this morning. Global Affairs Canada is trying to fix a multi-day disruption in its IT networks that has created massive headaches. Um, The Foreign Affairs Department had significant network outages over the weekend. Uh, At this point, still not clear what may have been affected or what information may have been compromised and or stolen. Uh, Global Affairs, of course, has led uh, our country's response to the tensions between Ukraine and Russia. And sources are very concerned that the network outages may be connected to this crisis. That's not definitive yet, but... Two and two, right? <laughs> you got the warning saying Russia will attack infrastructure and will attack government um, services, and uh, they did on the weekend, we assume, but we don't know for sure. So let's get some details on exactly what we can expect and how bad this could get with David Masson, who's the director of enterprise security at cyber AI defense company Dark Trace. Uh, David, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us this morning. Yeah, hi. Uh, lovely to meet you. So when we take a look at what's going on and just this news out of Ottawa this morning, that Global Affairs Canada has been the victim of some kind of disruption in their IT networks. Um, sounds a lot like exactly what they were warning about last week, right? Uh, yeah, it does, actually. Um, uh, when the government warned uh, uh, those people who are responsible for our critical infrastructure, part of our critical infrastructure is, believe it or not, government. That's one of the 10 items that we have. And lo and behold, with 48 hours and putting out the warning, uh, something seems to have gone wrong at GAC, which is uh, very, very unfortunate, given the fact that we're focusing on diplomacy with their situation in Ukraine, and our diplomats have just um, had their IT systems broken. Um, okay, so that's one of the 10. What other kind of things are we talking I think most of us, when we think infrastructure, we're thinking things like, you know, water treatment plants or whatever the case may be. What, when we talk about critical infrastructure, what kind of targets are available there? Uh, well, actually, you covered one there, uh, water treatment plants. That is part of critical infrastructure. It's the things that support uh, our basic um, life and economic systems here in Canada. So energy, um, particularly electricity, uh, government, finance sector, uh, health, farming, ag- agriculture in general. It's things like that. These, these sort of basic fundamentals that allow us to exist uh, as a nation. What do you, um, I mean, obviously this is the beginning, and we, again, we don't know for sure that Russia is involved what's going on with um, uh, government affairs, but or global affairs, but that seems to be the assumption right now. Would this be um, a, a shot over the bow? Would this be the start of something more to come? How would you anticipate, and how would you try and react to something like this? Well, it's very, very difficult, because um, you don't actually know when it starts, and you may not know when it finishes, um, the Russians have a long history of uh, being very clever at disguising their true intentions or uh, disguising themselves when they, they get up to no good. Um, so maybe it's already started some time ago and we're only starting to discover it now. Or maybe this is something else or this could be somebody else. Uh, uh, unfortunately, um, Canada has uh, more enemies than just uh, one particular nation state in the world. Um, but it's an example of what the disruption you can affect. And that's one thing you can do with cyber is you just keep your opponents, whatever your opponents are, just permanently disrupted and not sure about what's going on. And guess what? We're not sure about what's just going on with GAC. Uh, yeah. Somebody's disrupted us and we're actually pondering, well, what, what, what's this all about? What's the point? What's the, what's the aim here? And we're really not sure. So we're disrupted. We're distracted. Uh, and that's a really good thing to do to your opponents. Um, now, this is, I mean, 
the question, and I've asked this of so many cybersecurity experts, and there doesn't seem to be. A, I mean, we know, right? We like this is not new. We know that the activity may be ramped up because of what's going on around Ukraine, but we know these kind of cyber attacks have been something we need to guard against. Well, for years now, are, are we better defended today than we were, say, a year ago or five years ago? Oh, we're better defended than we were um, uh, five years ago. Um, and, and when we say we, there's, there's two elements here. There's what the government can do, uh, and primarily that's focused on protecting government infrastructure. Then there's the rest of us. Uh, we've just been speaking about uh, critical infrastructure. Yep. Believe it or not, 85% of that is in private hands. The government doesn't run it. And that will be one of the reasons why the government put that warning out last week to those who run our critical infrastructure to say, look, can you be on standby? Can you start doing something now uh, uh, towards uh, just upping your game? Uh, we are better protected now than we were five years ago. But again, we're always relying on, relying, if that's the right word, on what the, whoever the attacker is going to do, because we can't decide when, where and how what the attacker is going to do. So we're going to be ready all the time, really. That's what I'm wondering. Is there a way, okay, we know there's... The risk is always there, but we know right now with this warning and the situation that's happening uh, in Eastern Europe right now that the risk is much higher than it's been before. Is there a way of adding an extra layer of security, taking some things offline? Are there things that we can do and should be doing uh, in an instance like this? Well, you don't want to be taking things offline unless you've got a really, really, really good reason to. Um, An example would be when, like, Humber Hospital got ransomware a few months ago. Uh, They spotted it in its early stages and literally took the hospital offline as a way of stopping the attack. But we can't do do that all the time. You can't keep taking things offline because the company won't operate very very often. If you remember the Colonial Pipeline attack last year, uh, where they they had to take the petrol, sorry, the, the gas supply to the eastern seaboard offline for a few days. You can't keep doing that all the time. You'll disrupt your economy. You'll disrupt your own country. Um, so it's rather unfortunate, but you need to be ready for this kind of thing. And I think that's what's behind the warning that came out last week. I'm going to just say something about the, uh, the warning, Shay. Um, uh, I'm a kind of oldish guy now, and I remember the Cold War, War very well. I remember living through it yeah. uh, as a youngster and into my late 20s. And uh, I don't recall ever being warned by a government to be on standby for potential imminent Russian-backed attack. Never right. ever heard that. But we had that last Thursday. Yeah, you're right. Exactly. Yeah. And then we saw what happened on the weekend. Um, if if you're in Ottawa right now and you're part of this IT team that's got to try and figure out what's going on and at the same time prevent other further attacks, I mean, just what is the situation right now? Just trying to assess exactly what's been targeted and how bad this breach is? Yeah, what they'll be doing is they'll be going deep inside the, the network at GAC. Um, the, the fact that they know they've been breached shows that they found something. So that's their start point. They'll be burrowing into that. They'll be working out um, the exact nature of the attack, making sure that they don't, they, they can't, they're not vulnerable to it again. And then based on what they've found, they'll be using that to try and work out. Well, they're going to do something that's called attribution. They, they will be trying to find out who did this. Um, we may be told. We may not be told. Um, it all depends. That's up to the government to decide. Um, if we are told, and it turns out to have been something that's linked to Russia, I think, I think we might actually be told about this. Yeah. Um, but something the government will also be considering is, is you know, in, in the modern age, you've got to be careful about how wound up you make your country uh, during a crisis because you don't want to make things worse. Uh, what do you anticipate from here? I mean, obviously, this won't be one and done. Uh, do you expect more of this kind of activity by the Russians? Uh, well, we can expect more. Gen- in general, there's yeah. an awful lot of cyber activity going on anyway. 
And that's the whole thing about attribution. It's difficult to do. It's really only nation states can attribute an attack properly. And there are some private companies out there that are quite good at attributing them, uh, attributing attacks as well. And that, that's why you hear about things like Colonial Pipeline Link to yeah. a comp- an outfit called Dark Side, who are based in Russia. Based in Russia, it's usually a pretty good uh, idea of whose side you're on. Um, but it's difficult to do. You've got to do it properly. Uh, and that's what GAC will be doing right now. Yeah, going through it. Uh, David, great insight. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you joining us. You're very welcome. That is David Masson, who is the Director of Enterprise Security at cyber AI defense company Dark Trace. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All eyes on the situation um, in Ukraine right now, of course, as I mentioned, uh, the Trudeau cabinet meeting today, and they will be weighing further support for Ukraine during their three-day retreat. Uh, on top of that, Global Affairs Canada hit with a significant multi-day disruption of their IT networks. Is that related to the situation in Russia? We don't know for sure, but we do know that last week, Canada's cybersecurity agency issued a warning to infrastructure installations just like that, saying... Um, be on the lookout for this kind of activity. And some new polling out on this as well, done by Abacus Data, found that 83% of Canadians were in favour, or at least neutral, towards Canada helping Ukraine in protecting their borders. 75% also said they would support or could accept providing weapons to Ukraine. Canada has loaned Ukraine up to $120 million dollars. Uh, already. So what do we need to do? Are we doing enough? Um, What should our position be? We're going to chat with Hugh Siegel, who's a former chair of the Standing Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs and a Matthews Fellow in the Global Public Policy at Queen's University. Uh, Mr. Siegel, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you joining us. Uh, Good to be with you, Shay. Why don't we start with how Canada has handled itself so far on this file? Uh, You know, Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie has been very active and very busy. She's been overseas. Um, So far, how has Canada been doing on this? I think so far, um, both the new Foreign Minister and our Defence Minister have done and said all the right things in the sense that... um, Our foreign minister was in the Ukraine, was in Brussels, uh, met with our NATO partners, met with our forces on the ground in the Ukraine who are doing important training for the Ukrainian armed forces. Um, Our minister of defense has made it pretty clear that we may have to send uh, more troops as the circumstance plays itself out. But I think we now have to get out of that kind of cautious step-by-step mode and take a look at what is really necessary to ensure that the Russians do not do what they've done recently in the past, which is invade another country, seize another country so as to protect its own interests in a way which violates the democratic interests of those other countries. We have a whole bunch of NATO allies like Estonia, Lithuania, 
um, who are on the border of Russia. Um, we have countries like Hungary and Poland who were liberated from the Iron Curtain uh, and from the Warsaw Pact when the Soviet Union came apart. All of those are now within, if you wish, the overall view of Putin in terms of expanding his reach and his territorial presence in that part of the world. And I think now that the Americans are giving serious thought to deploying troops to Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania uh, to make sure that the Russians understand there's a very big price to pay for doing something that's really unacceptable, I think we should be looking at how we do the same uh, based on our capacity to do so and to do so before the Russians do something really, really stupid. Um, the question, Mr. Siegel, and like you say, you, you hinted at it there. We're now seeing reports that the uh, European Union uh, is sending in some aircraft and some additional military support. The United States talking openly about that prior to today, really. Much of the discussion has been around diplomatic pressure, uh, economic punishment, sanctions, removal from the global banking system, things like that. Is that enough or do you need to back that up militarily? I would say that um, whilst those kinds of economic sanctions uh, are really serious and will hurt Russia, um, let's, let's be clear about how the Russian government operates. Russia is a country of 158 million people. Its economy is smaller than ours with 36 million people. Its economy is smaller than Italy's, which is 60 million people. They have uh, significant problems of poverty. They don't really have any open democracy or expression of different points of view. This is clearly something that Putin has done in the past to get people's minds off their internal problems within Russia and look at so-called external enemies. I think, therefore, the more we can array with our NATO partners strong determination not to let him do this and to fight back if necessary, and if necessary, send weapons and and send um, material to help the Ukrainians in their fight, uh, that is more likely to constrain him from moving forward than just talking about economic sanctions. Um, and like you say, uh, this is um, not new in terms of uh, a tactic deployed by Putin. We've seen it before. He's, I mean, he actually has invaded Ukraine before, back in 2014. Um, have we d- not done enough? Have we not done enough to sort of um, contain his ambition? Well, when you had the seizure of Crimea, which was a violation of every possible international law by the Russians, and the world really, aside from some modest economic sanctions, did not do very much, that sends a message to Putin, who I think is intellectually very bright and who is a tremendously effective opportunist, if they're not prepared to engage on that, what constraints do I really have? And I think we now have to array clearly military constraints as well as the financial uh, sanctions that would be implied so that so that he understands the cost to Russia and to his own legitimacy as the leader in Russia, don't forget it's not a democratic system, will actually come into play. And unless we do that, we're not really doing all that we can to protect Ukraine from invasion. And, and I'm very conscious of the fact that we have over a million people of Ukrainian extraction in Canada who've made this country stronger and better in so many different ways. And many Canadians have relatives in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. So I think going the extra mile with our allies to make sure Putin understands the price he'll have to pay is too high is really something worth doing before he actually tries to invade. Um, 
when we take a look at Putin and uh, you know some of these activities, uh, there, there there is a school of thought that democracy is in peril globally, and we're seeing the advancement of you know authoritarian regimes and some long-standing democracies have slid away from that. I mean, can that fit into this discussion of the situation in Ukraine and sort of bolster NATO and the Western alliances? Um, you know, urgency in saying we need to take a stand against this and we need to support democracies where they exist? Shay, I think you've hit, I think you've hit on a very important point. Let's be clear. Um, both uh, Mr. Putin and President Xi of China have both made public speeches and have written pieces about how what we would call uh, rules of the road, democracy, independent judiciary, uh, opposing political parties, a free press, really doesn't work. They really view that as simply inefficient, gets in the way of what has to be done. It doesn't allow them the measure of control they want to have over their societies. And they are making the case, uh, both in Southeast Asia and now in Eastern Europe, that really the authoritarian model is better. Mm-hmm. And it's very important that we do not stand back and, ca- and fail to counter that argument, both with our own engagement and with our own military presence, because the bottom line is the last few years have not been good years for the democracies. Authoritarian governments have increased in the, in, in the amount that exists in the world. A lot of democratic traditions and that have existed in some countries have gone. So if we believe in democracy, as I think our government does and our parliament does and our fellow Canadians do, this is one of those places where we really, really have to make a stand. Otherwise, we do face the risk of democracy itself being something which is at risk. So where does that put us? If, if NATO recognizes that and says, okay, we're going we're gonna to take a stand here, this is a line in the stand, and, and we will push back as hard as we need to. And Putin is also in a position where I think he's, he has to do something, as Biden said last week. He's walked himself into the corner where he can't just walk away from this. Um, are we headed for armed conflict in Eastern Europe? Well, I, I'm of the view that the, the larger the disincentives for Mr. Putin to invade, the more the incentives for finding an agreement. And I don't think the agreement is about necessarily when and if Ukraine is allowed to join NATO. Uh, Ukraine is many years away from having the ability, both in terms of uh, its economy, in terms of the nature of its relatively new democracy, to meet all the tests uh, for joining NATO. Uh, I think the real issue, and I think in this respect, Trudeau, may, uh, Trudeau has an opportunity to be helpful because Putin is really concerned about the placement of theater nuclear weapons, which now exist in European countries, uh, which within range of Russia. And he's saying, from a security point of view, that has to change. There is no reason this was done by Reagan and Gorbachev uh, in Reykjavik some many years ago. There's no reason there can't be an agreement on the repositioning of those weapons in a way that provides a greater measure of security for the Russians, but also, consistent with that, would be a withdrawal of the 100,000 Russian troops from the Ukrainian border uh, back to barracks so that the Ukrainians get some security out of that. So there's a balance there that is possible. And I note that uh, when Lavrov and the U.S. Secretary of State met, there was going to be a written response by the American government to the uh, demands that have been made by Mr. Putin this week, and that could be the basis of that sort of discussion. And if, from Putin's point of view, he can say, look, Ukraine is not going to join NATO at least for five years, if ever, 
Um, we've got a whole bunch of nuclear missiles moved in a way that increases our security. He can then say, on that basis, I'm glad to withdraw my troops. But unless we give that kind of balanced context, it's going to be difficult for him to disengage, although he doesn't face any of the internal pressures from a free press or opposition parties that politicians in Canada or other democracies normally face as part of the way in which we run our store. Well, it's good to hear that you think there's still a path to a diplomatic solution here. That's good. As long as that exists, um, there's reason to be encouraged. I agree. Um, Mr. Siegel, I, I appreciate your time very much this morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Shay. Great privilege. Uh, that is Hugh Siegel, who is a former chair of the Standing Senate Committee on Foreign Affairs and a Matthews Fellow in Global Public Policy at Queen's University. So there's the latest on the situation there. Um, now, NATO is beefing up their military presence. Um, you know, as you heard Mr. Siegel talking, and, you know, everybody's still talking diplomacy, diplomacy, diplomacy. Let's talk our way out of this. In the meantime, NATO said today that they are putting extra forces on standby, standby and they are sending more ships and more fighter jets into Eastern Europe. Um, that was announced today. The U.S.-led military organization said it's beefing up its deterrence presence in the Baltic Sea area. Denmark is sending a frigate and deploying F-16 warplanes to Lithuania. Spain will send warships and could send fighter jets to Bulgaria. And France says they stand ready to send troops into Romania. Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg says NATO will take all necessary measures to protect and defend its allies. So that's where we stand. Inflation in this country has hit levels that we haven't seen, I think, in about 30 years now, more than 30 years, in fact. Um, it's right across the board. But one of the things, whenever we have this discussion, we always talk about going up in price. And one of the things that hits each and every one of us equally is food prices, right? Our expert we had on last week, Sylvain Charlebois, said that it's up about 5% so far this year and heading for 7% later this year. Now, every time we have this discussion, I get texts and we hear from listeners saying, well, where, who's, who's making that money? Where does it go? And we've had, you know, the uh, Cattlemen's Association on. They said, not us, maybe the Packers. I don't, but we're going to try and get some insight on that. Um, there's actually a, a process in place, or being started anyway, to try and answer that very question. This is going to be good. We're joined by Ian Boxall, who's president of the Agriculture Producers Association of Saskatchewan. He's in Tisdale. Hi, um, uh, Ian. Thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate your time. You betcha, Shay. Thanks for having me on. I, I'm really interested in this. You know, we talk about where does that 5%, who's making the extra money? Um, so basically, we've got a situation where you want to get together with other agriculture groups right across the country and ask that question, right? Who's getting that extra 5%? You betcha. I think, you know, as consumers are becoming increasingly interested in knowing where their food comes from and how it's produced... I also think complete transparency in the value chain is important to understanding food costs, all steps, right from the farm gate to the retail. Makes sense to me. Now, how are you going to go about doing this? What's the plan of action here? Well, so, you know, research in food, you know, the food dollar is not as comprehensive in Canada as it is in the States. They have some pretty concrete stats on to, you know, what what link in the supply chain gets what portion of your food dollars. So I think we need to, you know, start working with other players in the, in the industry and along with the Canadian Federation of Agriculture, who has done a whole bunch of work on this, and, and just finding out what is the share at each link in that supply chain, right from the farm gate to the retail, whether that be in the processing side 
whether that be in the retail and the marketing, which would be a big side, or whether it's, you know, in the cost for labor and transportation as well. All of those little links in the supply chain will have a cost, and I think analyzing that and understanding that and showing consumers exactly where their food dollar goes is important. And Ian, and I don't mean this in a negative way or an accusatory way or anything, but I know in speaking with other producers on the text line and people that we've had on the air and stuff, it's kind of like people get angry at us and think that we're making all this money, but it's very seldom the producers that are actually seeing those increases. It's not like anybody's getting rich out on the farm here. No, and I think that's part of it too, but I also don't want any disconnect between the consumer and the farmer. We appreciate them buying our products. We just need to ensure that we educate the consumer on, you know, where their dollar goes. As as the dollars don't stretch as far as they used to because of inflation and the cost of food, I think understanding the whole supply chain is important, you know, and educating everybody, the producer um, as well as the consumer. Do you guys know? Like, or, or is this something that you'll be interested in finding the results out too? I mean, Absolutely as a producer, do you know? Finding out the results as well. You know, I, I buy groceries for my family the same as everybody else, so I'm seeing the increased costs as well. And you're correct. The, what's rolled down to the farm gate, you know, is that there isn't a direct correlation between that and the price of bread or meat on the, on the grocery store shelf. So I, I think everybody, every consumer who cares would be interested in what those costs are. Okay, so the plan is getting started, and, and as we said, agriculture groups from all across the country working together on this. Um, how will this information be shared? Like you say, the transparency, I think you're right. I think a lot of people will be very interested in this info. Um, how will it be shared? Well, I'm hoping that we can compile the information, working with not just agriculture groups. We're also going to have to talk with processors and, yeah. and freight and retailers and all of that, and I'm hoping we can you know, compile that into a document that will be shared with the public that's easily to understand, and they can understand the, you know, the whole supply chain and, and where those costs are, are associated along that and shared. Um, you know, nothing, this hasn't been done before? So there's, there's been some research done on it, and we have some done in the past, and the, you know, and the Canadian Federation of Agriculture has done a bit to, on when in February when they advertised their Food Freedom Day and some of that stuff, that if you'd have taken all of the money you'd earned from, this, from January 1st to this point, you could have bought all your groceries for the year. There has been some research done, but I'm not sure that it's been you know, put together in a document that consumers can easily read yeah. and, fo- and understand and follow, and I think that's the goal here of the resolution that was passed last week at our AGM by our membership, and, and I think it's important that we compile this information to have an education piece. And like you say, it was just uh, just uh, composed last week. Any idea on a timeline on when people might be able to see this info? No, I think it'll take a little bit of time. Yeah. Like I stated earlier, it, uh, this information isn't as readily available in Canada as it is in, in some other countries, so I think we're going to have to you know, get down and get to work and compiling some of this, this information and, and ensuring that are, they're accurate, and we want to make sure it's accurate and it's up-to-date, and, and I think that'll be probably the biggest hurdle is getting all the, you know, all the information in and, and under, getting our heads wrapped around it and putting it out in a document that's, you know, people need to understand it and easy to read, right? Um, last one before I let you go, Ian, and it's just because um, the text come in over and over and over. Uh, everybody likes to point the finger at the carbon tax. Like, that's the demon for anything that happens. And I know it's certainly part of it, but will taxation be uh, part of the calculation in the increasing costs here? I think we'll have to look at it. I think taxation is becoming part of it, as we're seeing, you know, carbon tax placed on all of our freight. Um, I think it's important that, that that is outlined as well. So I don't think it's the whole reason to blame, but, it, you know, as we're seeing in, in record high inflation, I don't think that helps. But in the same token, that's the environment we live in, so we need to figure out how to manage that. Uh, Ian, I look forward to the findings. We'll follow up when they're public. Sounds good. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you.
Um, That's Ian Boxall, who is the president of Agriculture Producers Association of Saskatchewan, which is the group that's sort of spearheading this uh, initiative. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.